welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We all know our rights, and we know when our rights are being violated, even the little rights that don't matter. But are there times when not exercising our rights is better? Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series, The Authentic Life, with the first part of this message entitled, Gospel Freedom, which covers 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. This morning, we're about to dig back in to one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of 1 Corinthians. And I love this book because if you've ever wanted to rebut that idea that is so common in Christian circles... That idea that if we could just get back to the early church, we'd find our way back to this special kind of spiritual utopia. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians to realize that's a load of bunk. This is a jacked up church. They're mad at each other. They're angry. They don't understand the gospel and it is spilling out into every single part of their lives in real and tangible ways and nowhere is that battle more clear than in chapters 8 to 10. There is a group in the church in Corinth that is claiming that they have a special knowledge of Jesus, a knowledge so profound that it has given them special rights and they are now able to do things that some in the church are really profoundly uncomfortable with. And they are saying to the church, if you want to be free, you'll live like us. Now, as we dig into this, there are two questions that need to be asked. The first is, what is the nature of Christian freedom? And the second is, what's the nature of the gospel itself? Now, because of how long this text is, there's three whole chapters. We're going to do chapters 8 and 9 this morning, and the next week, Jeff is going to pick up with chapter 10. And so I'm going to slowly read through this as we go along instead of doing it all at the front. I'm just going to read the first three verses, and then as we go, I'll read more and more, because otherwise, you'd be here for a long, long time. So let's go now. Chapter 8, verse 1, first three verses. Now, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love, love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we come to you as those who know that you and you alone have the words of eternal life. And Lord, we pray that you would take this text, that you would take this time, and Lord, you would feed us with the only bread that satisfies, and that is your Son. Speak now through the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. We love talking about freedom, don't we? We're the country of freedom. We have the freedom to worship, the freedom to speak, the freedom to vote. We have holidays that celebrate freedom where we set off fireworks and we eat more food than we really have any business eating. But I wonder how many of us have actually ever stopped to wonder what it actually means to be free. Because I think for most of us, we think of freedom the way my three-year-old daughter, Mary Neal, thinks of freedom. 
My daughter, Mary Neal, has a toy that she loves almost above all others, this pink and purple plastic shopping cart that she will take and she will just run laps all around the main floor of our house with this cart. And as she's going, she'll stuff anything she can get her hands on into it. Remote controls, stuffed animals, pieces of food, whatever she sees that she thinks in that moment seems precious, it goes in the cart until it is overflowing and wherever Mary Neal goes, that cart goes too. Now, at first, Mallory and I thought this was really cute. She's imitating us. She's pretending to shop. But then something happened that revealed that that was not at all what Mary Neal was doing. Now, before I share what she did, you should know this about my daughter. My daughter is incredibly sweet. She's generous. A few nights ago, I'm sitting in bed with her, and she tells me that she feels bad for my dad because he's bald, and she wonders if maybe he would like it if she gave him some of her hair. To which I said, I'm sure he'd love that. So she can be incredibly generous. This just was not one of those moments. And it was revealed as soon as one of her little sisters tried to grab something out of that cart. Because she went ballistic. Because here's what was happening. Mary Neal was going around our house, and she was collecting everything that she thought was hers by right. And she was stuffing it in that cart so that no one could touch it, and no one could take it, and she would be free to play with what she wanted, when she wanted, and how she wanted, with no interference from her mom and I or from her sisters, because in her little mind, she thought that's what it meant to be free. That's how most of us think of freedom, isn't it? It's the idea of freedom that seeps into our marriages, into our friendships, into our jobs, into our politics. It's the idea of freedom that shows itself when you're sitting at the stoplight and you're sitting behind somebody who's sitting on their phone and the light turns green and you, because you're a Christian, you lightly tap on the horn because you're ready to go because you think that you have a right at that moment to move as soon as it turns green. That you have a right not to have your time wasted. We think freedom is in the accumulation of rights so that we can do what we want, when we want, how we want, with no interference from anybody else. And it's an idea of freedom that has found its way even into the one place where it has absolutely no business. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. You see it here in the book of Corinthians. There is a situation surrounding something that maybe to you and I in the modern world it sounds unfamiliar. There is a problem with food, particularly meat, being sacrificed to idols. Now when we think of food, we don't think of food as an inherently religious thing. You know, you go to the grocery store, you buy your food, and you might think about the health benefits but you're not worried about whether or not it has something to do with your faithfulness to Jesus. That is not true in the ancient world. In the ancient world, food, meat in particular, is intimately tied with religious practice. If you were raising animals on a farm, you weren't raising it, especially in the Gentile world, you were not raising it first and foremost to be slaughtered and then to go to the market. You raised that animal to be taken to a pagan temple of which there were many all throughout the city, to be sacrificed to a pagan god to make sure that that god didn't hit or destroy or hurt your city. And then that meat was served in a meal in the temple 
where you would eat that meat in worship to that pagan idol. And whatever meat was left over, that was then taken to the marketplace where it was sold to you, the consumer. So if you're a believer in the ancient world and you're going to the market, there is a question in your mind, isn't there? As those who've grown up worshiping all these gods, but who now know there is only one God and one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ, can I remain faithful to Him, and can I eat this meat? Can I eat the meat in the marketplace? That's not being eaten in worship of a God like it is in the temple, but it's still been sacrificed to a God. And what about in the temple itself? Can I eat at the meals where everyone else in my neighborhood and everyone else in my city is eating? And that question, it may seem to you and I like a very simple one. It's not. Because the ancient world orbited around these meals. It was the center of your financial life, your political life, your social life, your familial life. And if you were poor and could not afford meat in the marketplace, it was the center of your nutritional life as well. And so if you walked away, there were very real and tangible losses that faced you. There would be financial losses because you would not be doing what everyone else in the trade guilds was doing. There would be political losses because you would lose your access to the seats of political power. There would be social losses because you would be perceived as not caring about the fate of your city because you don't want to appease the gods who could destroy your city at any moment. And there were familial losses, because how does it look to your family if you won't eat a meal that's supposed to be blessing your cousin's wedding? There's a real question here. Can we eat this meat? And there's a group in Corinth that is saying to that question, yes, you can. You can't just eat the meat, but you can eat it wherever you want. You can eat it in the marketplace. You can eat it in someone's home. You can even eat it in the very temple courts because we know this. Jesus is the only true God, and all the idols, they are the creation of human hands. They have no substance. They have no reality, and so it doesn't matter where you eat it. This is our right no one can take it from us, and if you want to be free, you will come and you will eat with us too, because this is something we don't have to give up. And Paul, in these chapters, and I don't want you to miss the force of this, Paul is going to say, you have profoundly misunderstood the gospel. And it is revealed in these two things, you have broken the two greatest of all the commandments. Chapters 8 and 9, you have failed to love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 10, you have failed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Paul, in these first three verses, says, you think you have knowledge, but you don't actually understand what you're saying. You have a knowledge that puffs up. A knowledge that leads to pride, to the assertion of your rights over and against the good of your neighbor. But you are missing the one thing that always flows from true knowledge. The one fruit, as he says in verse 3, that is always present with the one who is known by God in Jesus Christ. And it is this, love. The love of God that overflows in the love of neighbor and builds them up even at cost to ourselves. Paul says, here's what Christian freedom is. 
Christian freedom is not in the accumulation of our rights so that we can do what we want, when we want, how we want. Christian freedom is as those known by God in Jesus Christ. We lay our rights down out of love for God and love for our neighbor. And Paul says it starts with this. We abandon knowledge that puffs up. Now, if you've ever read Paul, you know that Paul is not somebody who hates theology. Paul, he likes his words. He likes the grammar of the gospel. He wants to make sure that you understand the thing you're confessing. And so what Paul is saying here, he's not saying you shouldn't care about the story of the gospel or the theology of the gospel or whether or not it's properly confessed. What Paul's concerned about here is knowledge that is seen as an end in and of itself. Knowledge that leads us to pride, to thinking that we have arrived at something that nobody else has. Knowledge that leads us to claim rights that, as we're going to see, we may not actually have. And then to use those rights even when it hurts our brothers and sisters. And as those who are in a denomination that loves their theology, and who are in a church who shares that love, and as a pastor who shares that love, we need to listen really carefully to what Paul says next. Because what Paul says in these next verses in chapter 8 is that it is possible to have an orthodox confession but to possess a heretic heart. You see it right here in the first few verses. He says in verse 4, what you're saying, the place you're starting, it's true. It's orthodox. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, not just you, but Paul and the Corinthians, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. You're right. The idols aren't real. They have no substance. They have no power. They are the creation of human hands. And there is only one God, the one revealed in Jesus Christ. That's true. He alone is worthy of your worship. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, for the redeemed people of God, for those claimed by the blood of Jesus, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul's saying that confession, that's true. There is one God who has created everything that exists in this world, who created you and I and knit us together in our mother's wombs, and he created us for this purpose, for himself. And he has revealed himself fully and completely in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, through whom he created us, but also through whom he redeemed us, that we who were living for ourselves would instead live for him, and he has done it by the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Paul says, that's the story of the gospel, and you have it right. But here's what should alarm every single person in this room. He says, you've confessed the right thing, but your lives reveal that you have not in any way actually understood it. You have an orthodox confession, but a heretic heart.
Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as offered to an idol, and with their conscience, their conscience being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care, and notice how he says this, that this right of yours, not ours, he's implying that this is not a real right, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating, and notice where, in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Jesus died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, you know that in the church in Corinth, within the church of Jesus Christ, there are some who, even though they have the same knowledge you do, they know there is one God, they know the idols are fake, but when they go into those temples because they have grown up eating those meals, if they put that meat to their lips and they begin to chew In the back of their minds, there is that little whisper that maybe there is some substance to this meal that is actually there, and maybe, just maybe, I am being unfaithful to Jesus, and so you encourage them to sin against their conscience, and thus they are defiled. Paul says, you know this is the case. And not only do you know this, but verse 8, you know that the food is a matter of indifference. It doesn't make you better off with God if you eat it. It doesn't make you worse off with God if you don't. So you know that this food, it doesn't help you, it doesn't hurt you to eat this food. He doesn't say where, just the food itself. And yet knowing all of this, that if you eat this meat in the temple, that you will encourage someone whose conscience tells them that they cannot do it and you will encourage them to do the same, you do it anyways. Because you think it's your right. And nobody has any business taking that from you. And in your pride, you cause your brother to stumble. You defile his conscience. And you destroy him. Someone so precious to Jesus that he died for them. You treat as worthless One Jesus saw as so valuable, he gave his own life to possess them. And you sin, not just against your brother, you sin against Jesus himself. As Jesus himself has said, as you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. You have an orthodox confession, but heretic hearts. Because how? How can you know the God of the gospel? The one in Jesus Christ who though, as it says in Philippians 2, who though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant and in humility became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can you know that Jesus? And then turn around and in the name of your rights destroy your brother. How can you know The Jesus who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. 
and then turn around and say, Jesus came to serve, but I have come that I would be served and I will give my life as a ransom for no man. And hear the seriousness of this. This is not something that we should skip over. This isn't something we should read and go, that's for them and not for us. Catch how much weight Paul puts on this. Look at verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. What's that mean? If the love of God, if the love of God that shows itself in love of neighbor as expressed in the love we have received in Jesus Christ, is absent, and a knowledge that fills us with pride and leads us to assert our rights, even when it means the hurt of our brothers and sisters, if that is what is in our life, then Paul would say, you have absolutely no confidence that you were actually Jesus' own. And you were at risk. You were at risk of being one of those that Jesus warned of in Matthew 7. When he said, there are many on the last day who will have said, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but instead they will hear from me. Depart from me, what? I never knew you. I don't know about you, but that stops me in my tracks. Because Paul has just said that it is possible to be a people who know the words of the gospel but to not actually know the God of the gospel. Paul is looking at the Corinthian church and at every believer who is using their rights for their own good and at the expense of their neighbor, and he is saying, lay it down. You sin not just against your brother, you sin against Jesus himself. And come back. Come back to the one who came to serve even people like you and who offers grace even to those who abuse it. And follow him and embrace not the knowledge that puffs up, but love, love that builds up, love that lays down its rights out of a love for others and a love for the gospel, the love that we see perfectly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul says, if you want to see what that looks like, you have only to look at me. Paul says, you want to talk about rights, chapter 9. I have rights, and I have more than you do. Which sounds cocky, but Paul is absolutely right. He's saying, I'm not just a Christian, I'm an apostle. There are rights and privileges that I have that you do not that God himself has given to me, that all the apostles share. So if you want to talk about rights, let's talk about rights. I have a right as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel, to expect that I would be fed from my labor, that I would make a living from my labor. And you know that I have this right. And I'm just going to summarize this because this would be long, but here's basically what Paul says. He says, you know this first from human experience. Verse 7, you know that just as the person in the lowest of all jobs and also the person who has the best of all jobs, as they expect to have some return from their labor, so too should everyone else. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO or you work at McDonald's. You expect to be paid for what you do, to be able to feed yourself from that labor. You know that. And you know that I not only have this by the way of the world and what you've seen, I have this by divine authority. If God, in the book of Deuteronomy, as he says in 
verses 8 to 14, if God in the book of Deuteronomy says that even the ox is not to be muzzled, but instead is to have the muzzle removed when it's treading grain, so that even the ox makes a living from its labor, how much more someone created in the image of God? How much more someone who sows in your midst, not material things, but spiritual things? If God in the old covenant had the temple priests provided for with the offerings from the temple, how much more the minister of the new covenant who brings to you the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if you don't think that all those things are true, Paul says all you have to do is go and look at the words of Jesus himself. Verse 14, he says this, In the same way, the Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul says, you want to talk about rights? I have real ones. And if you are the church in Corinth, you should have a sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach because you have to know where Paul's about to go. Because Paul is saying, I have real rights. And as the Corinthians know all too well, Paul has never claimed any of them. He has freely given every single one of them up. Look at verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my boasting. Go down to verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says, what I receive freely from Jesus at cost from him and him alone I give to you freely and at cost to no one but myself. I'm not preaching to you. I'm not writing to you. I'm not crying out and praying for you because I'm obligated to you, because you've paid me money. I'm here for one reason and one reason only. I love you and I love Jesus and you are his sheep and so I cannot let you go. Paul is saying so far as it does not compromise the gospel, if there is something in my life, even if it is my right, even if it is precious, even if Jesus himself has given it to me, if it stands in the way of anyone coming to share in the blessings of the gospel, I will lay every single thing down. I will become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And he does it because he wants to see, as he says in verse 23, the redeemed people of God come to share with him in the blessings of the gospel that he's received. If you've grown up in church, this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to start talking about alcohol and worship. 
Because this is always where we go with this text. And I've done that myself. I've preached that way myself. But I'm going to say, I think that shows the shallowness of our thinking. Because if that's as deep as we're going to go with this, we probably need to go back to chapter 8 and ask if we've actually understood that confession. Because if we're going to divide and wound and hurt Christ's church over the style of a worship song, there may be something seriously wrong in our hearts. Paul is talking about something a whole lot deeper. Paul is saying, I will wade into any culture. He's wading into the same divided world that we live in where there are racial lines and ethnic lines, cultural lines, political lines, lines of class, lines of poverty and riches, lines of political weakness and political power where there is shame and there is glory. And Paul is saying, I will wade into all of these places. And while I will never compromise the gospel in love for those people, I will be willing to humbly sit and listen and learn so that I would know their struggles and I would know their wounds and I would know their hearts. And if there is a single place where my assertion of my rights or privileges in any way distances them from the gospel, then I will give it up even if it means my livelihood. That's the call of Paul. Are we willing to do the same thing? Are we willing, in love for those, even those that maybe before we would have despised, even those who are part of the wrong political camp, even those who are part of the wrong racial group, even those who are a part of the wrong educational class, even those who are a part of the wrong religious background or with wrong whatever else it may be, are we willing in love for that person to in humility come and listen to them and learn from them so that we would serve them in a way that brings them into the throne of grace so that they would share with us in the blessings of the gospel. Even if it costs us our livelihoods. You know, as a guy who when my baby girls start crying at night, immediately starts asking in my head who got up last, was it me or my wife? This cuts pretty deep. And I find myself sitting where I'm sure a lot of you are sitting and going, Lord, I want this to be true of me. But I'm so far from it. How in the world is this possible? And Paul says there's just one answer and it's one word, Jesus. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast where they were interviewing a British historian by the name of Tom Holland. And Tom Holland is a, uh, an expert in ancient antiquity. He's written books on uh, the Roman Empire and Greek philosophy, and he is presently working on a book about the Apostle Paul, where he essentially argues that if you want to understand not just the Western world, but the modern world, East and West, you have to wrestle with Paul. Because if you want to understand where we got concepts like the dignity of every human being, international law, the value of women, the evils of slavery, and a whole host of other things, Tom Holland's saying you have to go back to Paul. It's not in the Greeks, it's not in the Romans, it's not in that philosophy. It came from this particular point, this particular point in time, from the writings of this one man, and these few letters caused the entire world to be radically reshaped. And what makes this interview so interesting is that Paul, not Paul, Tom Holland, is not a Christian. 
He's explicitly not a Christian. He doesn't believe Jesus is God. He doesn't believe he was raised from the dead. And so the interviewer is listening to him tell about all these things that have come from the Apostle Paul. And he goes, you have a clear affinity for Paul. How do you explain his ministry? You know, do you think something happened on the road to Damascus? Or are you, what do you think took place there? Because where did this come from? And Tom Holland's answer was this. When Paul walked onto the road to Damascus, he was a member of the educated religious elite. He was a man who had privileges that few in the ancient world could have ever dreamed of. He was a citizen of Rome by birth. He was a man who had been educated in the Jewish system, but who also had been educated in such a way he was conversant with Greek philosophy and Greek understanding and Greek knowledge. And that kind of education implied that he probably came from some kind of money. He had a career path where he already had respect and authority. His future was paved. But when he walked off the road to Damascus, he threw all of it away for a life of pain and suffering and trial and tribulation to proclaim the name of a crucified Messiah whose people he had previously tried to kill. And Tom Holland said this, I don't know what happened to him on the road to Damascus, but I know this, Paul, at the very least, he thought, he thought he saw the risen Jesus. Paul would put his arm around Tom Holland and say, brother, you are so close, but so far. I didn't think I saw him. I met him. And I saw him in his heavenly glory. And in a blaze of light, he exposed me for what I was, a man who was not zealous for God, who did not love God, but by his actions was revealed to have hated him. And you revealed himself. He revealed himself. To be one who so loved even a man such as I that he gave me heavenly glory at the cost of his heavenly life. He gave me an imperishable crown that could never be taken away, purchased by his blood, when before all I had were perishable things that could have been plucked from me at any moment and would certainly be taken from me in death. And he entrusted me with the care of his gospel and the care of his sheep. And in the face of that kind of love and that kind of mercy as one known by that count of God, how could I possibly respond with anything but love? In the face of one who gave up so much, how could I possibly lay claim to my rights? I lay them down because I have seen the risen Christ and I have experienced his mercy. And Paul would say, it is that Jesus who beckons to you and I this morning. It's that Jesus who is inviting everyone to take their pink and purple shopping carts and throw them to the ground. It's that Jesus who tells us that we have to abandon knowledge that puffs up and embrace the love that builds up. It's that Jesus who invites us into the race that Paul speaks of here at the end of chapter 9 where we are running not for perishable things, not for earthly comforts and earthly reward, but instead for an imperishable crown of glory that Jesus offers to all of his sheep purchased by his own blood. And it is that Jesus who calls to us. Because here's who he is. Jesus is the one 
who says to people who have spent all their lives laying claim to rights that were never theirs to begin with, Jesus is the one who says, I had every right in heaven and on earth. And out of love for you, I laid every single one of them down so that those who did not deserve it would share in that which only I rightfully possess. As those known by such a God, how could we possibly respond in any other way but to love Him? Christian freedom is not in the accumulation of our rights so that we can do what we want, when we want, how we want. Christian freedom is as those known by God in Jesus Christ. We lay down our rights out of a love for God that overflows in a love of neighbor and builds them up even at cost to ourselves. Let's go to that God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning that we are held in the hands of a God who so loved even broken, sinful people that he sent his one and only son into this world that we would not perish, but whoever believes in him might have everlasting life. And Lord, I pray that you would so overwhelm us with a vision of Jesus' glory and his mercy that even as Paul, we would take everything that we have, even the greatest of gifts, and we would throw them to the floor and say, Lord, I joyfully give it to you because I want to see your gospel. I want to see your gospel go out to every tribe and language and people and tongue, even if it costs me everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.